what we've discovered is that there are hundreds of laws that that are on the books in Illinois that that still create this prison after the prison where people can't gain access to housing, employment, educational and and occupational licensing opportunities. And so the goal of this campaign is is to really sort of eliminate all of these sort of permanent punishments that people face after they've served their time. The goal of Fully Free is to say that once you've completed this sentence, we now have a pathway for you to be restored to full citizenship and be able to have access to human necessities that are needed for people to really move forward in a healthy way. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard. Welcome to Justice Voices. I'm David Risley. And I'm Leonard Joyner. Our guest today is Marlon Chamberlain, who lives in the Chicago area, where he manages the Fully Free campaign of the Heartland Alliance. Mr. Chamberlain, welcome. Thank you. Thank you. In our last episode, we heard your story about how you spent over a decade in prison. What led you there, your experience reentering the community life after prison, and the path that brought you to where you are in your life today. For those listeners who missed it, we hope you go back and listen to that episode, which is full of insights and perspective, valuable to anyone with an interest in getting a look at our criminal justice system from the inside out, rather than the way most of us view it from the outside looking in. Today, however, we want to focus on the fully free campaign that you manage, Mr. Chamberlain. What is it, and why is it needed? The Fully Free Campaign is a statewide campaign to end all permanent punishments for individuals after incarceration. And why we need Fully Free, I would just use my own story. Like a lot of people, once they've completed their sentence and they've been released from prison, like technically your debt to society has been paid. But what we've discovered is that there are hundreds of laws that, that are on the books in Illinois that, that still create this prison after the prison where people can't gain access to housing, employment, educational and, and occupational licensing opportunities. And so the goal of this campaign is, is to really sort of eliminate all of these sort of permanent punishments that people face after they've served their time. So when people get out of prison... As you say, they're not necessarily really out of prison yet. Mm -hmm. That's something that if we, people like me, want people like you who have been to prison and gotten out to be able to go live a law-abiding, productive, healthy, happy lives, well, the last thing we want to do is to have barriers in the way of that. Mm -hmm. We want to get behind you and help you succeed and do what we can to help you succeed. And yet, here, Mr. Joyner, Mr. Joyner, tell the, our listeners about your experience when you finally got your first job out of prison. Here you are. When you get out of prison, you've gone through five years of training to become a certified chef. What was your first job? Well, I got a job working at this hotel as a cook, a line cook early morning, breakfast-type cook. They did my interview and everything. They called me in. I got the job. 
So after being there for maybe a couple weeks, if that long, they called me down to HR and said, hey, Mr. Jordan, how you doing? I said, I'm fine. Hey, Mr. Jordan, you're doing a great job, man. We get a lot of compliment on your cooking and stuff. But there was a problem, Mr. Jordan. Uh, what's that, sir? Well, Mr. Jordan, you're an ex-felony, and uh, our policy doesn't allow us to hire ex-felony. I said, well, I told the young lady when she interviewed me that I had a record that I had just been released from prison. I'm on supervised release. Well, Mr. Jordan, I don't know how you slipped through the crack or whatever, but we must terminate you. They terminated me immediately that same day. You in our last episode, we interviewed Sam Dent, who is another of my former defendants and a friend of Mr. Joyner's. Uh-huh. Yeah, he went to prison. He got out, and, and he had five years of training as a cook. And so here you have people like Mr. Joyner, who's a certified chef. And I don't mean prison certified. I mean genuine certified chef. And you have Sam Dent, who's five years of training as a cook and experience, and they're applying for jobs. I can guarantee you the competition for those jobs. Those people do not have five years of training and certification as a cook or a chef. And yet, who gets the job? Before we get to the legal things, what about these sort of cultural things? I think a lot of it is just miseducation. And going back to to something that I said in in the, the previous podcast is that I think it's about the way we label people. And we label people as as good or bad versus looking at decisions that people make and really looking at the like whether the decision was bad or good and what what was the consequences of a decision that led you to to prison. And my thing is, is if you send people to prison, which we all sort of like like believe that people are sent to prison to be rehabilitated then why are we still holding these legal barriers or even these psychological barriers over people if that person has completed that their time and they're done? Like, it makes no sense. And, and it's almost like you set people up to really go back to prison because you release people into, into neighborhoods where there's a limited amount of resources and you tell individuals, okay, go out and rebuild your life but then you put all of these barriers in place to where like now a person is forced to maybe work in a certain place that may not necessarily like give them an opportunity to provide adequately like to their family. And so it's, it's almost like you're forcing people to to work in certain industries and you're blocking people from from really being able to grow and, and develop a career based on, on their passion and what they want to do. Well, when we send people to prison, the hope for, I think, everyone is that when the person gets out of prison that they're going to go straight. They're not going to return to crime. Mm-hmm. And yet, when there are fewer alternatives to crime when people get out of prison than when they went into prison, by that I mean fewer alternatives for employment, fewer options for housing, and the legal barriers that we're going to get into in a little bit, then people shouldn't be surprised that rather than going straight, they end up returning to crime. Well, that just is not a rational system. We need to have a system when people get out of prison, they have more alternatives to crime, at least viable alternatives to crime, 
if we expect them to avoid returning to crime. Mm -hmm. Some people, though, I know perhaps some of our listeners may be thinking the best predictor of future behavior is past behavior. The best answer to that, it seems to me, is to address the premise on which that concern is based. Is it really true that past criminality is a good predictor of future criminality? What do you think about that? I, I would say no. And, and I would use the, the percentage of folks that have been able to get out and stay out that, that really like bunks that, that myth. And I would also say that if a person completed their sentence, that person has paid their debt to society and shouldn't have to live with the, the fact that they can, they committed a crime however many years ago. I would also just think about like, what if, what if we use sort of like that same analogy with, with everybody? Like, what if, what if we held everybody to that same level of expectation to where whatever you do, that is a predictor of what you might do again. And I even think I forgot the, the quote that says, uh, the Just Mercy quote that talks about like being more than, than a decision that I made. Or what if we were the worst, worst decision that, that we ever made in life? What, what if we held everybody to that standard? Where if you lie one time, now I look at you as a liar and use your history to say that every time you say something, I think you're lying to me. It doesn't feel good. It doesn't restore people. And so at the end of when, when a person completes their sentence, it's about how do we restore this person back into the community? And that is the goal of Fully Free. The goal of Fully Free is to say that once you've completed this sentence, we now have a pathway for you to be restored to full citizenship and be able to have access to human necessities that are needed for people to really move forward in a healthy way. So with that being said, what is your outlook on, remember that ban the box? Mm -hmm. What is your outlook on that as of back then and right now? So I think ban the box is a start. Of, of removing the box from the application and giving people at least the opportunity to interview and explain to people like what rehabilitative steps that they've taken since their release. But I think that's just the start. And I think what we're asking for with the complete removal of the statute is saying like, why do I even have to explain in an interview to someone about something that I've served my time for and I've completed the sentence, I've paid my debt to society, why do I still have to live with the shame and the, the negative connotations that come with having a record? Yes, I spoke with IDOC and the uh, Federal Bureau of Prison about this ban the box action. I'm like, you, why do I have to keep explaining myself? I have served my time, I have paid my debt. Why y'all keep holding this over my head? I don't get it. Well, here's an observation. In our previous episode, we talked about people being on three tracks in prison, mm -hmm. uh, one of them being the crime college track, mm -hmm. one of them being the just past the time to do the time, mm -hmm. and then the other one being a track that you two were both on, which was or got on to improve your lives and to prepare for release to live a different type of lifestyle a law-abiding lifestyle, a healthy, productive lifestyle. Mm -hmm. And you've done that. The fear, of course, of potential employers is that people 
who are coming in to apply for a job, once a criminal, always a criminal sort of mentality, that these people are on the first track, you know, the crime track. Well, if they were on the crime track, they're probably not going to be applying for a job with you. Right, right. No, absolutely. We know that there's a lot of people out there who believe in second chances. In fact, I think even people that may be hesitant to hire people who've been to prison really believe in second chances. But somehow there's this war between two different mindsets that people have. I think they're conflicted. They don't, really don't know how to deal with people who've been to prison. They're uncertain about what sort of risk. And so the safe thing is, well, let's just not hire them. Well, that immediately creates a problem because as you close doors to people to move forward crime-free, you create incentives for them to return to crime. And it seems to me that people that close those doors and create those incentives to return to crime are in many ways complicit in the return to crime and that they ought to be thinking about that. Am I going to be part of the problem or am I going to be part of the solution? And if you're part of the solution, then here's somebody who, like Mr. Joyner, my goodness, he's a certified chef and he's playing for a job as a line cook. All right, we're going to fire him because he's been to prison before? That is totally irrational. The truth, though. <laughs> In June of 2020, Heartland Alliance released the Never Fully Free report. And in this report, we estimated that there are 3.3 million people with an arrest or conviction record that are impacted by permanent punishments that were arrested and convicted since 1979. There's also a huge percentage, I think it was somewhere around 45% of people who we didn't know the outcome of whether they were convicted or not. So we're probably looking at close to 4 million people in the state of Illinois who have an arrest or conviction record. Four million people. Four million people. And, and I also just want to provide some, some, some other context is that we talk a lot about reentry. We talk about reentry when people first come out. But what about the huge percentage of people who have been out five, 10, 20 years that are still facing these permanent punishments from a conviction from years ago. And I would also say what, what we're learning in our research as we continue to, to, to scrub the Illinois code is that we've discovered laws that absolutely make no sense at all. Like there's a law right now in the books that says that anyone with a felony conviction cannot be the administrator or executive over their family member's will. And so Example, in March, my father passed away. I'm the next of kin. I could not be the administrator or executive over his will because I have a record. That has nothing to do with public safety. We've also discovered that there's another bill that prohibits anyone with a felony conviction from being on the, the premises of a bingo site. And there's no enforcement mechanism, meaning that if I'm on a bingo site, there's no enforcement mechanism to where they can say, Marlon, because you have a record, you have to go. And so what we're learning is think about the messaging in a lot of these laws. Like, what are you telling people? And the last example that I would give is that right before my, my son ended 
his first grade school year, his teachers asked me to chaperone him and his classmates on a, on a school field trip to a bowling alley. And, and of course I said yes, but because of my background, I could not chaperone my son on a school field trip. So even when we think about a lot of the narratives around black men and, fa- and, and black men being fathers, like look at what, look at the impact of what these permanent punishments create because now my son doesn't understand like why I can't chaperone him. He's thinking like, well, they asked you to do it. Like, why can't you go? And, and I'm trying to explain to a seven-year-old that because of my background, I can't chaperone him on a school trip. So what we're learning is that a lot of these laws make absolutely no sense at all, but they're hindering people. And what we're also discovering is that you don't even know what you can't do or how imp- uh, permanent punishments impact you until you apply for something. So if I go apply for a position, now I find out they're like, well, I have to submit a background check. I'm barred for life. And it's like, well, whoa, I went to school. I've invested all of this money for you to tell me now that I can't become a chef or I can't work as a janitor, that I can't work in a school as a as a janitor because I have a record. So so we're we're learning as we continue throughout this process to, to see like, like there are a lot of laws on the books that just make absolutely no sense at all. When we look at what are the most important elements of a successful reentry program or a reentry experience after prison, mm-hmm. the most important elements of those include employment mm-hmm. and housing. Mm-hmm. What sorts of laws or barriers exist for people to find employment? suitable for their talents and their abilities and their skills Mm -hmm. and that would provide a living wage for themselves and their families. Mm -hmm. What barriers exist for housing? Because if people don't have a place to spend the night safely, Mm -hmm. well, yeah, they're going to find some way to get the money to pay for housing one way or another. So employment and housing, what can you tell us about that? What we've learned thus far, and we won't be finished with the full analysis until probably the end of the year, but some of some of the themes that we're seeing is that, em, that employment opportunities have the highest number of permanent punishments. And then in, as in regards to housing, the number one barrier that we see is, is people having to take or do background checks. That, that really hinder people from being able to, to find housing. But overall, employment is has the like highest number of permanent punishments spread it across several different categories. So like here in Chicago, the healthcare field is one of the largest growing like employment opportunities for people. And there are there are a lot of permanent punishments. Uh, in fact, in 2016, we worked on a bill that reduced there was a lifetime barrier for anyone with a federal conviction to work in hospitals, schools and park districts. And we were able to lower that that lifetime barrier to where now it's seven years. But when I think about Chicago and I think about the the six like sort of like major zip codes that people return to after incarceration is the south and west side. And so think about it. If you're blocking people from out of an industry that's one of the fastest growing industries, 
you're blocking people from opportunities to develop a career. Um, so we're not we're not yet like completed. We haven't completed our research, but these are just some of like our early like like findings that that we're seeing uh, and the themes that we're seeing over and over and over. How do you go about trying to correct these problems that you're identifying? Our plan is we we believe that that ending permanent punishments requires legislative action, and we can't we can't continue this to try to roll back one policy at a time. We believe the fully free campaign, we believe that that there has to be a comprehensive sort of policy approach that includes sort of like this wholesale approach where we develop sort of like these categorical like packages that would address certain industries or we may introduce an omnibus bill to address all of the statutes that are that are on the Illinois code. We we haven't decided the strategy yet, because next year is an is an uh, an election year, um, so we're trying to figure out what is the best strategy to introduce sort of like this comprehensive wholesale approach to addressing policy versus introducing one piece of policy at a time to sort to sort of roll back a lot of these barriers. As I understand it, your fully free campaign really has two dimensions. One of them is the legal side, which is you do the legal analysis and you have people that are working on that. Mm -hmm. And the other side is building community support mm -hmm. for the fully free concept. Yep. And to remove these barriers. Yep. So that people who have a desire to live a crime-free life are able to get the education, able to get the employment, able to get the housing, able to get the uh, support that they need to be successful in making that transition, which, of course, that's a win-win for everybody. Yep. yep. I mean, it's a lose-lose when there are barriers to prevent people from doing that. So yep. how do you build community support? What are you doing in that area? So on June 4th, during the weekend of, of Juneteenth, we had several different fully free launch events across the state where we're partnering with organizations in Aurora, Rockford, DeKalb, Carbondale, Peoria, Champaign. And, and we're currently talking to some folks in Bloomington Normal, Kankakee, Waukegan. But what, what we're doing now is really sort of just building relationships with different partner organizations across the state to really educate people around what is a permanent punishment. Because what we've also discovered is that a lot of people don't know that we have hundreds of laws on the books that are hindering people from being able to, to really access their rights as a citizen. I'm a lawyer. I didn't know that you couldn't be an executor of a will if you... Absolutely. So we're, we're building relationships across the state. In my role, I do a lot of traveling. So I'm on the road constantly just riding around, whether it's a, a lunch and learn or we're having different community events. The goal is to really get the word out that these these barriers exist and then also sort of outlining what we believe our pathway to victory is which is building out a statewide coalition 
working and telling our story to sort of reconstruct and own our narrative, what we're doing here today with, with Mr. Joyner and, and, and myself. Um, we want to continue to tell those stories of, of people that are impacted by permanent punishments that, that are trying to move forward uh, in their lives. And so, so we have the, the, the narrative change work. And then we also want to continue to leverage research to really cast a vision around what we believe public safety looks like without permanent punishments. And then the last component of our campaign is the legislative component, which is we'll learn once our analysis is completed, we'll have a better sense of like how we want to introduce uh, legislation to eliminate these permanent punishments. So the four phases of how I sort of summarize the campaign is continuing to build out a statewide coalition continuing to tell our stories and owning our narratives. We want to continue to leverage research and then introduce legislation that would eliminate all of the permanent punishments that currently exist. And this is a multi-year campaign. And so right now, like I said, we're really in base building mode where we want to get out and, and really build with as many people as we can across the state that, that will support this campaign and really educate and activate people to get involved and de develop leaders because I believe that people should be their own advocates and their own liber liberation. And so we want to activate and develop people so that they can fight for their own liberation and then politicize individuals, meaning we want folks to engage in the legislative process to help us to remove all of these permanent punishments. You know, when I was in the governor's office as director of public safety policy, obviously I was working in a political environment. Mm -hmm. And uh, as I left that environment, I was thinking about how do we continue the work to change public policy in areas including what the sort of thing you're talking about. And it seemed to me that trying to do it in a political environment from the top down was a little bit like trying to push a rope, as I sometimes say. It's, uh, push, it's, you're starting at the wrong end, mm -hmm. and uh, that's pretty tough. The people in the political environment respond to what their constituents want, mm -hmm. what the public wants. And so the way to change public policy is to change public perceptions. Absolutely. And how do you do that? Well, that was really the impetus for implementing Justice Voices, which was a concept, an idea that I had been thinking about for some time, even while I was in the governor's office. And as a result of that, one of our objectives is to give people with stories that need to be told and voices that need to be heard the opportunity to share those stories and to give voice to those things, the lessons learned that, that came from those things, so people can understand what it is that you're talking about. And what it is that uh, Mr. Joyner and I are talking about when we're talking about these public policy issues. So if there are people that you think we should be interviewing to share their stories, well, that's what Justice Voices is all about. And Mr. Joyner and I would be very happy to do that. Yes. So I would say I have 11 people. So what I didn't talk about, the, the Fully Free also has a governing board that is comprised of all directly impacted people. And these are individuals from Aurora to Rockford, um, from all across the state 
who have a unique story and like why they do what they do and and why they are a part of Fully Free. So I would definitely start just by volunteering the governing board because I think they would be great for people to hear just a, a diverse sort of like just the diverse stories that each one of us have and and how and why we do this work and what happened. Um, so I would definitely volunteer the 11 members of the governing board as, as folks that I would love for you to interview. Well, let's make that happen. Let's do it. And for those listeners who would like to learn more about the Fully Free program, do you have a website? We do. So the website, um, you can go to fullyfree.org. And the website has a, a plethora of information from the the virtual, our statewide virtual launch event, which was what took place on June 23rd. You can also see what action or if we have any sort of like campaign activities happening across the state. But there's a, a plethora of information that you can you can gather from the, the website. And once again, the, the website is fullyfree.org. And I can also leave my contact information um, as well if people want to contact me directly. Well, we'll share that in the show notes, as they call it, for this episode. Thank you very much, Mr. Chamberlain. Thank you. And Mr. Joyner, thank you for being my co-host and partner in this. Thank you as well. Your story, too, is one that needed to be told, and your voice is one that continues to need to be heard. For those who are listening, if you don't want to miss any of these future episodes that we're talking about, subscribe to the program so that you don't miss any of these. This is Justice Voices, stories that need to be told, voices that need to be heard.